Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Adam Ferrier. He's a registered psychologist and also a multi-award winning advertising creative and founder of the advertising agency Thinkabell. He is also a leading Australian consumer psychologist, an expert in brand strategy and an authority on behavioural economics. Adam is the author of The Advertising Effect and part of the Australian Creatives Power 20. He also is a regular on the Gruen series and has featured on The Project, Celebrity Apprentice and ABC Radio, so he's very well known here in Australia. Absolutely enjoyable to, to be speaking with Adam today, talking about not only consumer uh, psychology, but also the parallels within clinical practice and everything between as well. Really down-to-earth uh, conversation, quite fun. I know that you'll enjoy it as well because I certainly did uh, and hope you uh, uh, enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed recording it. A big thank you to you today, Adam Ferrier, for coming onto the show. I know you're a consumer psychologist, and that is fairly unique in the world of psychology. So um, thank you. And maybe we can start with what is a consumer psychologist? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question, and I, do, I have to be careful, don't I? Um, so I graduated. I'm going to have a very long answer, if you don't mind. I am um, at... At school, I was uh, I used to trade shares on the only landline every lunchtime at school. So lunchtime would happen, trade shares all lunchtime, hang up, go back to um, to school to the classes, and I was always known as the kind of the the weird rich guy who played the share market. Um, but I was failing school at the time, so I went to see a tutor, and the tutor said, "What are your interests?" And I said, "I'm really interested in people, and I'm really interested in money." And the tutor said, oh, I should become a consumer psychologist. And I thought, oh, my God, that's perfect. I had no idea what it was. So I went and studied commerce, got a Bachelor of Commerce and Psychology, uh, ended up getting a clinical master's in, in psych um, and got res- registered as a psychologist. And so for years, I just called myself a psychologist. And then I kind of delved into the registration and all that stuff and realised you can't call yourself any of a registered body, so you can't call yourself a clinical psychologist registered or a health psychologist or a neuropsych, but you can call yourself anything else if you want. So you can call yourself a dog psychologist, a consumer psychologist, a chair psychologist, whatever. So consumer psychologist it is. In, a, in the US and uh, the UK, that's a registered term. In Australia, it's not. Um, but I look at, I would describe myself as looking at people and their interrelationship with brands is, is what I think a consumer psychologist does. 
Or if I'm feeling evil, I'll say it's understanding um, why people buy the things they buy and encouraging them to buy more of the things that they buy. It's, it's really interesting because I think there's an enormous overlap there. I've, I've always felt that even as a clinical psychologist, much of our work is about you know, selling a, a, an idea or selling a perspective, you know, having enough trust in the, in the room that you're able to pose a different perspective for a client to, to look at, to observe, to, to be open-minded enough to potentially even adopt uh, and it's not necessarily that the psychologist is saying, I want you to agree with this or see this, but rather you know, I want you to have an opportunity to see how a different narrative or a different perspective might feel for you. And it's done in a, you know, in, in, in a vulnerable way. And, and you know, clearly when Mercedes go out and show us those shiny black cars and the like, it, it, it invokes a feeling as well. It's, 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 it's a great point, Nesh, and it's one of the things I really hate about psychology is how little attention it pays to that um, and how much it constrains the psychologists in how they think they should be doing things. My favourite ever psychologist was Albert Ellis, and I, I got to meet him once and had this very awkward meeting with him, And but he used to bully people into behaviour change and he used to scream at them and yell at them and, and bully them kind of almost to, to, to change their behaviour. And I just liked the creativity of that. I just liked the self-permission he had to act like that, to create behaviour change. And when in the scientist practitioner model, and I'll put that in quotes, um, you get so hamstrung on having to do the right thing in, in the right way that I think lots of psychologists forget that they're in the business of behaviour change. They're trying to affect the behaviour change of their clients. And anything goes to that end if you have good intentions and, you know, do no harm and so forth. And so the creativity and the marketing of the message is so important um, and it's so badly taught. In fact, it's taught out of you rather than into you as a, as a psychologist. Or you know, So... Um, so it's, it's something that, that fucked with me actually for a long time because I was so, when I was practising psychologists, I practised in the prison system for a while in private practice, but I was so concerned about getting it all right that I forgot about selling the principle of, of change. Um, and I, I wrote a book, uh, the, the first book I wrote is called The Advertising Effect, How to Change Behaviour. And it deals a little bit with the ethics of, of marketing, but it takes this, it, it arcs back to the ethics of, um, of psychology, really, in that um, psychology needs to realise it's in the behaviour change business. Somebody's paying you to change their behaviour. And if you don't acknowledge that and look at that in the eye and say, right, that's the power dynamic we've got, that's the transactional relationship we've entered into, then, then everything else falls by the wayside a little bit. So I'd like to think of psychologists being right. You're paying me to change your behaviour. I'm now going to do everything in my power to do that. And that's just not practising ACT or practising CBT or whatever it is. That's drawing on all the resources I possibly can to help you get to where you need to go. Hmm. It's interesting because there are, you know, even small examples of that, whether we... You know, whichever model we grab, obviously I'll use I'll use ACT. Um, but when we think about it, 
at university, you know, I, I, maybe it's changed these days, but you know, certainly through my time, we weren't uh, um, we weren't exposed to things like metaphors, you know, that, that that we look at, you know, discussing stories and and those sorts of things because they're stickier for a client to take away. Yet, you know, in in an, in an act perspective, they're a tool that's used, you know, quite commonly and. Uh, sometimes you bring vagueness into a session to in- increase intrigue and open-mindedness uh, to, to kind of pull the client in. It's almost like a commercial that you don't really know what it's trying to sell for the first 20 seconds. Um, but I reckon, I reckon, I reckon you've got that vague, I reckon you've got that vagueness thing down pat. <laughs> 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 well, it's it's, it's you've got to practice that as well, right? You got to, to try. And, okay. um, I, 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 lo- I love I love what you're saying. I love the intentionality of of what you're saying as well. I like you know I like how um, you're putting a deliberate kind of focus on on how the how the message is communicated. And how I get people to buy into this message, which comes right back is marketing. When I was a psychologist, I was really lucky. I had two kind of key models who just a year or two older than me, but bloody brilliant. One of them was called Steve Feelgood, who was this kind of maverick weirdo, but but hardcore into he used to say I practice HC CBT, which is hardcore cognitive behavior therapy, was his thing. And then I had another mate, <laughs> yeah. Then I had another mate called Thatch. And Thatch is still a psychologist practicing in, in the Nimbin area. And Simon Thatch is his name, he's brilliant. He used to always say to me, his ideal therapeutic, his ideal um, hour of therapy would be the patient walks in, sits down, neither of them say a word to each other for the whole hour, and then the patient leaves. And it just <laughs> through whatever, there'll be, there'll be some kind of change. And I, I just love that because... And it just broadens my mind in terms of what's possible and how to create change. And I, you know, I think it's kind of kind of beautiful. What do you think are the elements of of, of change? Whether it's in, well, I mean, maybe if we just talk about as humans, you know, whether it's in a therapy room, whether it's you know from a marketing perspective, what are the fundamental you know uh, changing influences? I mean, obviously. As a consumer psychologist, you're trying to tap into this all the time, you know, in, in little segments, you know, whether it's on radio, whether it's visual, whether it's whether it's print. What what makes us change or what, what are the contributors? So uh, um, this is something I've looked at a lot. And because I'm in basically in advertising or marketing, um, we need to keep things super simple, loads and loads of stakeholders. Everybody needs to buy into a message and it needs to have a degree of robustness about it. Um, and so um, we've looked at, I've looked at loads of behaviour change models and think it boils down to two key ingredients, which are somebody's motivation to do something and how easy it is to do it. Motivation is made up of incentives, what's in it for me, and social norms, what are other people doing? And ease is made up of cognitive ease. Uh, can I process the change needed? And physically, can I literally do it? And I reckon those four variables, put them on an XY axis, uh, motivation versus ease, the higher up you go, the more likelihood you are to change behaviour. 
are, and there's a few different models kind of uh, coalescing in that. There's the MOA model, there's marketing sciences, there's BJ Pog's model. Um, and then, and that's the model I use all the time. And I reckon you're there or thereabouts. If you're if you're talking about people's motivation and talking about ease, you're there or thereabouts. Motivation's a big woolly subject. So break it down into the centres for me and social norms. What are people doing around me? And I reckon you've got most of the variance there. Uh, the one thing that doesn't take into account is uh, is time, and. Uh, and and what type of change over over time is is the is the other variable that I'd like to have a more robust answer for. Hmm. And and obviously, time becomes a factor of I'm assuming ease in particular. Well, actually, both those factors. Uh, but in, in in the therapy room, you know, we'd often talk about exposure therapy that you start very slow with something because the ease is too high to jump in and do flooding. So you might kind of break it down and start at the very start and, and generally make yeah. it play, or it might be from a... But if, you, if you do something like systematic desensitisation fast enough, it becomes flooding in a way anyway because you you compress the whole thing so much that you end up just kind of bashing through the cognitive distortions or whatever anyway. And I think the most effective stuff I ever did was that in that kind of world where you just compressed everything um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think of a couple of examples of specific phobias we treated and stuff where we did that kind of, we just did systematic desensitization, but really, really quickly. And I was amazed. I felt like I'd actually cured, in, in quotes, cured somebody, you know, like, and, and that's a word that people don't like to use. But I didn't, somebody said to me in the prison system once, Psychologists don't help; they soothe. And for years, I thought, "Oh, that's good enough. That'll do." I'm, I'm, I'm soothing people. But then, when I got into the anxiety disorders area, I realised that you could kind of, you know, cure people of certain certain tight phobias and things like that. Um, the beautiful thing about so, the, yeah. the ACT model is, is at least for me, uh, you know, even the way that we apply systematic desensitization or exposure therapy is really more around function, which I think taps into what you're saying in terms of, you know, what's the motivation rather than the ease. Um, and if, if someone is highly connected with function, that, that, you know, they're looking for the outcome, they're connected with, with what does this give you, i.e., for example, freedom or, um, you know, freedom of movement um, gives me an opportunity to go visit my family member, then the willingness um, is much greater to, to bear the pain, you know, which is the, 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 the it reduces the um, ease um, or yeah. increases my pleasure, the ease, it makes it a little bit easier to sustain the pain for something, you know, in the service or something important. It, it, we talk a lot of marketing about goals-based marketing. So understand what somebody's goal is of the category. Once you understand the goal, then the person's emotion is just a self-regulating method to know whether they're getting closer or further away from that goal. So what you need to do is constantly understand the goal and put the goal in front of people. Um, and, yeah, so I, I found that interesting. Look, the other interesting thing about this whole concept of motivation, one of, the, one of the more interesting things I found out after I left university was this thing called the Benjamin Franklin effect. 
which basically says the best way to get somebody to like you is to get some favor. So it's the opposite of, uh, and I can never say this word, I'm going to struggle, reciprocity, in that if you do something for me, Nash, you're much more likely to want to do something else for me and keep on doing things for me. You're not necessarily expecting something in return. And that's because you're investing something of yourself into me. So that whole concept you spoke about before about vagueness, you're getting your patients to invest into you by leaning in, by trying to understand, by helping you connect the dots for the behaviour change you want them to make. And in marketing, uh, if you can get somebody to invest something of themselves into your brand, get them to promote it, get them to pass it on, get them to do something with it, then they're more likely to like you more because they're interacting with your brand. So if you have to have your thoughts, feelings and actions aligned, you can either change thoughts and feelings that lead to action change or you can change actions and then they'll post-rationalise the thoughts and feelings to make sense about action. And so that's that's um, that's a little... Um, it's either a technique or a post-rationalisation of, of what we do. Um, but but I... I, I like that. I like the idea of getting people to act first. And well, the, the, the saying we say is um, uh, action changes attitude faster than attitude changes action. So, um, and the, the same thing for, for, for brand preference. Brand preference tends to increase after you've bought something. So after you buy something and consume it, you tend to like that brand more than you like the brand more and then you consume it. And that's the difference yeah. between the goal-orientated sort of marketing, which is trying to put the action in first versus the brand marketing, which is you post-rationalise it after you've gone out and, 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 and purchased it. One's got more um, more of an objective, uh, measurable outcome to say we want someone to do X, which is to purchase or yeah, subscribe or whatever, whatever the goal is. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I can't quite make sense of that question, which is you reflecting back what I just said to you. So it probably um, means what I'm saying doesn't make sense. But um, the in marketing, marketing has historically been really, really preoccupied with this way of measuring brand health, which is measuring awareness and then consideration, then preference, and then buying. And it's kind of quite a fictitious model. We don't necessarily go, go through that kind of funnel, if you like. We normally just go, oh, God, I run out of Coke, there's a Pepsi, I'll buy the Pepsi. And then you might drink the Pepsi and like it more, and and then it kind of, it kind of almost goes the other way. Um, and so, yeah, so, so anyway, it's so just getting people to act first and, and change their feeling second, I think is an interesting principle, whether it be for behave for ultimate behavior change, whether it be in a therapeutic relationship with clients, get them to act, get them to interact, get them to do stuff for you, get them to get your coffee rather than the other way around. Uh, and it's the same thing applies for brands. Um, you know, like there's, you know, if you had a say, so if you had a client meeting at 10 and your client was it was 9 50 and you said oh if you texted them and said hey you're getting a coffee do you mind grabbing me one i'm sure that client nine of those 10 clients coming up would feel closer to you for having got you a coffee for example 
Does that make sense? Do you agree? Absolutely. There's something very personal about a uh, a coffee. Um, And interestingly, the world of psychology, our, our code of ethics says you're not allowed to do those sorts of things because you're building a relationship that's outside of the therapy model, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but well, you're absolutely well, right well, because it says there's an exchange going on. It, it, it blurs the relationship, but you're, uh, it would be a very powerful tool to start leaning yeah. into um, some of those personal personal sort of um, uh, spaces. But that's exactly what marketing does, right? It's, it's asking someone to do something in line with the brand. I mean, I, I'm assuming... If I just try and draw an example, uh, Tesla, for example, have uh, got an army of people who, in actual fact, started before they they started their own Tesla operation, which was people who believe in renewables and, you know, green energy and and, and looking after the the earth, and and they tapped into uh, a segment that was already incredibly passionate uh, and obviously they have a compelling product and so on and so forth but it's very hard for people who, who purchase a, a, a tesla to be disappointed um you know even if they've had issues with the damn vehicle or products that they sell they're still advocates for you know but go tesla you know we're on team tesla it's, it, it, they're, they're, they're so caught up in it it's like it's a part of them 100 percent so divorcing the line between the producer and the consumer is really important so blurring that line between who's making the thing and who's consuming the thing and the more you can get the people consuming the thing to be in on and feel like they're co-producing the thing the better and just again nash coming back to your concept of vagueness of which you are just before I thought you were an expert, but now I'm seeing like ninja quality levels of vagueness coming out of you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that vagueness, again, is, is divorcing, is, is killing the line between the therapist and the patient because you're in there together working it out. So, uh, so I think, I, I think you, you get it. The, the analogy with Tesla is, is kind of what you're practising in, in your sessions or... Well, that's that's the application, I guess, of your in the therapeutic relationship. Let me switch gears a little bit and ask you about uh, how do you work with with your clients in in terms of, for example, a goal orientated um, uh, program, so so to speak. You know, how do you go about identifying what the goals are and and, and doing that? That's always fascinated me um, you know, to to really do strong behaviour. Change. I came from an ABA sort of um, background, which is applied behavioural analysis, working with children with autism. Um, and uh, I tell you what, it was it was almost like the Skinner box um, in, in 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 real life. In, sorry, in, in in real time, where you know you'd be um, you'd be demonstrating an act that you want a child to do, and then you would physically grab their hand and make them do the act and then you would reward them with some sort of usually food um, and you do this 30 hours a week um, and obviously this is for fairly low functioning ASD um, children uh, but over time and with that investment 
you could uh, begin to create opportunities for a child to connect the dots, you know, to, to hopefully see a bit more theory of mind or make these changes. So for me, the uh, behaviourist place is so, um, I'm very fond of it. Um, I'm also very aware of how, um, how much that's in the mind of someone not uh, ours in terms of I can think I'm teaching something but I might be teaching them something completely different and that will be revealed in six months time um, but I'm, I'm interested to, to hear about it from that marketing perspective because I think that's that in so many ways is so behaviorist yeah the, the example you give breaks my heart only because of the effort I, I hear in that for such for such small incremental gains and um <clears throat> Um, and I don't think, I think what's interesting about marketing um, or the type of marketing that I'm in is it just doesn't tolerate, it doesn't tolerate that. It's, it's, a, mass, it's a mass market game with limited resources. And so it's about trying to find the maximum impact, I guess, for the, for the least amount of intervention. I guess we all are trying to do that um, uh, to some degree. Um, at a, at a macro level, when I left psychology, as I said before, I had all this scientist practitioner kind of stuff in me and I got into marketing and everyone said, oh, you're a psychologist. Isn't this just like psychology? And I was thinking, nah, this is all made up bullshit. In psychology, it's all really, really kind of rigorous. So there's nothing fucking um, psychological going on here at all. It's just uh, random. Um and that was 20 years ago. And in the last 20 years, marketing has undergone quite a revolution, um, driven, driven by really, at the very peak of it, one person, a guy called Professor Byron Sharp, who is a professor at a school called the Arenberg Bass Institute, which is part of the University of South Australia. And they've been the, the, at the forefront of bringing marketing sciences into the world of marketing and it's it's not new but it, it's helped science find its voice in the world of marketing and so there's a lot more rigor now um than there ever has been before and so um the the objectives are kind of evidence-based and the solutions are kind of evidence-based and you know my, my agency practices something called measured magic which stands for uh, marketing sciences meets hardcore creativity um, which you you know you you'd have heard some themes there before, which I've pilfered and put into a kind of central proposition. Um, and then our, our agency—that's how our agency practices stuff. So we strongly believe in creativity to solve problems, and our form of creativity, if you like, is is measured magic. Um, how we how we apply that. Um, at the most at the most basic level. Um, you analyse the market, you find a key insight or a key finding of which to build a, an idea. You take, and that, and that insight will help you kind of create the behaviour change you want to create. You, do an, you put an idea out into the world, uh, you, you create an idea. Um, my client will buy that idea. There might be three or four or five ideas when you select one or two and they go with one particular idea. Once we go with one particular idea, we then 
massage that idea out into all the different channels it needs to live and breathe in uh, to, again, to affect the behaviour change we want it to affect. And then so we put that into a call about an action plan and then we and then we implement that action plan and then if you see stuff out in the world, you might see ads or whatever, and then hopefully um, it changes behaviour. But it's all pretty much lots, there's lots of measurement put in place as well. Um, but as they say, adver- advertising is, is a weak force. There's lots and lots of um, determinants of behaviour change, you know, weather or time of day or <clears throat> how the business is going or supply chain issues or whatever. So measuring the effect of advertising is, is a difficult thing to do. And what sort of measures do, do you look at and is it, is it always uh, on the, the uh, back end or, or are you doing things upfront, for example, um, uh, doing sort of uh, group research to see how, you know, how to get 50 people in a room, give them some sort of marketing and, and, and get their sort of think tank about how they feel or, or is that all just so costly? Yeah. That they, it's got no, 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 no. That, that, that happens. This whole world. Like. That happens a lot. That happens a lot. Getting the people up front in the room is really important. Um, getting the insights, understanding how people interact with categories. Most of the time people give you insights, not in terms of brands, but in terms of a category. So, People don't necessarily want any particular brand, but they want a category. So I'm thirsty, I want a drink, What? and then it's what drink do I want? I, want, I need to buy a new car, then it's what car. Um, I want to have a holiday, it's then where do you want to go? So, it's, so you get the insights at kind of a category level, how people interact with the category. Then you marry that, <coughs> excuse me, with the behaviour change you want to create, and then you apply that to the to the brand and what the brand actually stands for and how the, that brand should necessarily speak. Um, and then the measures that at, that's kind of the insights at the front end, the measures at the back end, they're either around um, behavior change. So that could be sales, but it could be um, other intermediary measures of behavior change as well. Even things like awareness or preference or um, did I interact with that? Um, did I see that? Um, did I pass that message on? And then there's, um, there's brand metrics um, such as how healthy is my brand, what does my brand stand for, um, do, my, do people like my brand versus another brand and so forth. I imagine that the measuring must be the biggest headache of the lot. Or it's, is it all pretty yeah. much built in now? I mean, obviously we're in a, we're in a digital world, but trying to, trying to know... Um, uh, uh, the outcomes be very difficult because you know you can't just slap a cookie on everyone or whatever it might be to, to know how do they respond or how do they engage with it, or yeah. the sort of systems that are already built uh, that. You no, know. It, it's terrible, and the most uniform systems are based on. There was an insurance salesman, of course, in Elmo Leonard in 1896, who developed this process of selling insurance that said, first of all, you got to get there attention then you got to get their interest then you got to get their desire and then you got to get them to act and it's called aida and it's just made up by this daughter or sales insurance person <laughs> but anyway one of the big research companies in marketing thought thought that was a good model to base their marketing their their, their measurement tools on and then it took off and so the whole measurement industry has been hoodwinked by this 
bloody door-to-door sales insurance person from 1896. So there is no uniform way of measuring and it, it's, it's an absolute headache to this day. And the other thing is you've got lots of charlatans and snake oil sales people saying they've got the measurement solution, which just further muddies the waters. So it's, it's a hard thing to, um, to, to work our way through. But I bet you, Ness, you have very few listeners who are really interested in the measurement of brand, brand metrics. I don't know. I don't know. I think we've got a quite an eclectic uh, listener. Listener. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Maybe, maybe I was just saying I don't want to talk about measurement anymore. Can we talk about no. something else? Well, well <laughs> um, what, what, what? When you're, um, what, what is it when you're uh, trying to set up a campaign for, for example? Uh, do you often nail, and where are you surprised? And, and I ask that question because, as a clinician. Uh, whether I like it or not, there is a little voice in my, my my mind that's constantly talking and predicting and thinking that, you know, my ego is so large, I, I think I'm brilliant, I know what my client's going to say, but the scientist practitioner says you've got to check in, right, you can't go out and assume and, and more often than not I get it wrong. Um, you know, there, there's so much I might get right, but uh, you're trying to be, you know, you're trying to stand side by side with your client and, and, and obviously check in. But our mind is so assumptive and it's you know, launching ideas all, all the time. When you're working with a client and, you know, I don't know if you, if you and I said, how do we go out and, and, and market you know, a tissue box? You know, we, we might go out and say, oh, people want to know about the softness or something like that. And obviously that's our assumption. You know, how do you go about, you know, setting these ideas up and what where where do you get surprised that your assumption was completely wrong or, or where are you fairly confident that you're going to get it right or, or are you always testing to see you know you're always going back to you know the group think type scenario and asking is softness and actually a an important factor here it's a wonderful question um so So, so the, when when we do, there's a whole lot of principles we kind of try to follow. So, if we take the, if we turn the toilet tissue and if we turn that uh, tissue into toilet paper, for example, as, as a thing. Um, first of all, what you kind of what you're meant to do is look at when I mentioned the before about the category and the category people wanting the category. You look at the category drivers or the category insights. So, people want soft toilet paper. Um, they want it to be strong. They don't want their fingers to poke through all of that kind of stuff. And so then um, if that's that's kind of what they say, and then that leads you to triple ply, super soft toilet paper featuring a dog, a soft little Labrador puppy or whatever it is. Sure. Um, and then that... That becomes, and then the other people do the same thing and they see that it's the same, they get the same insights from the category. So they do the same kind of thing, but they talk about it being quadruple ply and um, they say it's wonderful for your bum or whatever it is. What, coming back to your question, the, in, in the toilet paper category, there's a chap called Simon Griffiths who you really should get on your podcast. He's quite—he's an amazing entrepreneurial chap. He's lovely. 
he wanted to create a toilet paper that was um, good for your bum, but also good for the world and would donate 50% of its profits to build latrines in clean latrines in developing markets. And so he created that and it was called Who Gives a Crap? Um, and Who Gives a Crap uh, was good. And you'd think if, if that was all the information I gave you, you'd think <clears throat> they would say they'd put on the big pack, pack on the big side on the side of it, helping develop latrines, giving away 50% of profits to, to clean latrines and, and so forth. But they didn't do that. Uh, if you can hear my kids playing in the background, apologies. But they didn't do that. What they did is they made it really beautiful and really designed it and really, really cool. And all the packs look amazing. And so now for the first time ever, people have toilet paper that looks really cool in their, in their toilet when, when you've got the, the empty you got the rolls there to, to be used. They look beautiful. So they've designed their toilet paper for, the, for people. Now, you would have never have got design as a category driver talking when you talk to the consumers at the front end. And you would never have got that as an insight saying, oh, people want really cool looking toilet paper for their toilets. That would never have happened. That needs to come from an entrepreneurial mind. And so it's a long answer, but to come right back to your checking in thing, I think the more you check in, the more safe, the response becomes, but not necessarily the better. And I think sometimes I constantly struggle with this concept. You're not allowed to talk about the visionary. You're not allowed to talk about the, the person who just has amazing, crazy, wild ideas versus the focus group. And the focus group is mediocrity. It's, it's, it's 20 opinions kind of coming, building up, taking us towards the middle versus the power of the visionary, whether it be in advertising, marketing, psychology, politics, architecture, whatever, um, toilet paper design. And so I think, I think sometimes checking in and getting it wrong is overrated because you just might have been right. It's almost the, the uh, safe option which might be okay for a larger brand, uh, they can just continue to do the safe option. Uh, and it's harder for them to take a punt and say, let's go out and package something and just, you know, go, go, go really creative. If, they're, if um, leadership is afraid of, you know, potentially damaging the brand. Well, or, it's, not, it's not just coming back to your, to your example with you checking in with your clients you're still not getting, even though you're checking with your clients, you're still not necessarily getting reliable and valid information, mm -hmm. are you? So if you say, look, I think you're really narcissistic to your client, is that, am I right? Actually, a narcissist will say yes. Let's say I'm getting that you're really anxious around bees. Is that right? And, they'll, you know, they might say no or, oh, that's not necessarily true. I wouldn't say really anxious, but it could actually be completely the truth. Do, do, do you know what I mean? So I, just by checking, just by checking in, I don't think you're necessarily getting to a better solution. Yeah, yeah, and there has to be a level of courage that a psychologist can bring into the room to uh, take it beyond what their clients necessarily saying because you are going with cl clinical impression, obviously taking a good history. 
trying to understand what are the functional pieces and and therefore proposing something um, to extend someone's thoughts, not just checking in around feelings because, you know, often we'll, you'll see a feeling but we're trying to check in with, you know, in particular uh, deeper cognitions or deeper understandings of, you know, one's past or how people tie the tie the dots together, you know, as in narrative therapy. I, I've seen a psychologist, uh, not a psychologist, I think they're actually a counsellor, um, but I've seen a counsellor recently or last few years or so, and he, he's probably been the most effective counsellor I've seen in my life and he is also the one who talks the most he just talks at me for quite a long time and I find that quite interesting just in terms of his conversation that it, almost by the amount of words he's throwing at me he's going to get something right or something that resonates and I do and just came right back to your original question of when do we get it wrong or when do we assume something that's right it's a hard question to answer because in our industry, we're constantly checking in. We're mm-hmm. checking in with our client. We're checking in with our consumers. There's lots of research. There's lots of opinions and so forth. And so I, I would say there's lots and lots of missed opportunity potentially by checking in uh, too often is how I'd answer that. Mm-hmm. As in almost to a, to, to a potential detriment, the, the pendulum swung so much that we're checking in too much or we're too data-driven, we're trying to spend all this time and energy in getting it right or from a clinician's point of view, um, uh, continually going back to uh, a client's uh, representation rather than asking them to, you know, spending more time in the actual fact, examining beyond that initial you know, thought process because there's an automated process that always comes up. You know that 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 uh, is the you know is that repetitive nature of the mind versus taking it further and and, and questioning that repetitiveness to see is there something deeper, so to speak. Um. Yeah, I just I just think sometimes the more people you ask, the more, especially when we're dealing with something that's around creativity or something, then the more often. A, an idea can be killed or modified or hurt in, in some kind of way that is not exactly apparent. There's a um, there's a there's an advertising professional called Dave Trot. And he often talks. He often uses the analogy of um, if you um, are sick, the the, the 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 most sure way to die quickly is to have an in-house physician. So if you have a doctor living in your home with you let's say you're Elvis Presley or Michael Jackson, you're much more likely to die quickly because if you're feeling up, the doctor will give you downers. If you're feeling down, the doctor will give you uppers. And before too long, they will kill you because you are constantly asking the doctor, uh, you know, for for help. Um, And the analogy being that if you ask somebody's opinion, they'll give it to you. And then you're kind of almost obligated to act on that opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not necessarily to the betterment of the outcome that you want. That's beautiful because I, I think that, that that sort of appreciation also talks in some sense, at least in my mind, about where psychology has come, where there's been so much awareness and, and push built on, you know, the importance of mental health. Uh, which yeah, and removing stigma, which I think is a great thing. Uh, having said that, there is a, 
that unintended consequence, which has almost become that, you know, we're all checking in on how we're feeling now and, and anything outside of my desired feeling must be abnormal or must be wrong. So, you know, we mislabel depression and anxiety so commonly. You know, we, we've lost the terminology like, you know, I feel, you know, uh, a bit of angst and some anticipation in my body. We, we go and say, I'm anxious. You know, we don't go, oh, I'm feeling a bit nervous and, and um, I've got uh-huh. butterflies in my stomach. We, we, we run to an- anxiety straight away and it's such a clinical term and, and, and you know, our system is blocked Sorry. by that as well. My apologies. Yeah, it, it's such a, and it's a dangerous conversation, right, for us to have, especially in the, med- in, especially for you in the, in the helping profession, right? It's almost, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I find it, I find it fascinating. A woman um, I know called Bridget Delaney um, has written a lot about wellness, and she's. I think her book is called The Wellness Something or Other, but it got turned into a Netflix series with Celeste Barber, and um, and she looks at all the different ways you can get well, and. And um, I got her to speak to our agency recently, and she just said her favourite school of wellness are the Stoics, and um, and looking back to Stoicism and just sucking it up, and and um, and she said there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that. And again, you don't go out there and you can't say that that openly because that's what it used to be, and that was bad. But it was meant to be much more. Sorry, Adam, my connection's cutting out a little bit there. Can you can you still hear me? Can you be quiet, please, everybody? Um oh, I'm just gonna turn off my video. The internet connection's failed a little bit. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Not a problem. My apologies, Adam. The, 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 it, it cut out. Um, you were talking about obviously the dangers around that stoicism and, and talking about, about that openly um, in, in this day and age. Oh, okay. I, I just rambled a bit about stoicism, just saying that it's really good. And, um, uh, and I, I, I think that, you know, I think there's something to be said for just sucking it up, and um, and it, but again, it's a dangerous thought because there's implications of that as well. And I don't want to say it ignorantly, but um, it's just 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 to your point about how the the downside of being overly demonstrative with our feelings and overly uh, too so quick to label stuff, and yeah, so sometimes it, it can be good just to just to try to suck it up a bit. I think. It is interesting because I know that psychology is is so regulated as it should be so that we don't have, um, uh, you know, people of of the fringes speaking and, and, you know, saying they represent psychology. So we've all got to be careful with our language. I think there's a nuanced conversation or a nuanced discussion uh, that's important there where I think there is definitely a time for you know, um, you know whether I use the words uh, in, in 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 air quotes. You know, sucking it up, uh, or we might talk about it you know, in the therapy model. Would be validating that one's feelings are normal, 
and making space for that and encouraging the client to, to come and, you know, have some experiential acceptance, um, you know, with undesirable feelings, you know, that, that we're, we're in a world at the moment where it almost feels that everyone's so avoidant of undesirable feelings that, uh, you know, we, we have, you know, <laughs> air conditioning wars is a classic one, right, where one person turns it up, another person turns it down, um, where we're intolerant to, you know, one or two degrees of heat or cold. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I agree. But we've got to be careful, you know, language, language, you know, is, is, is very frightening these days, you know, that, that there's, there's almost like a psychology of fear um, that, that, uh, that grabs so many of us, particularly in, in uh, you know, mediums like this that can be broadcast to lots of people, you know, you're not allowed to step out of line, something could be misconstrued, you know, the, the, the lack of the nuance is, is a concern that you can't have a proper discussion and understand it because, you know, the Ellis, you know, uh, REBT approach and, you know, being fairly bullying uh, probably does have quite quite a great value and, you know, potentially could be measurable in in good behaviour change. And, um, you know, there's probably lots of PT trainers that have used that that model uh, that's been popularised by, by television uh, in, in a really effective way. Yeah, I am... I feel I can't believe the pressures I feel now to talking about talking about various subjects um, that I never felt before, um, and I, I, I'm sure I've mis um, misremembered if that's if that's a word um, Cameron Diaz's first ever film, but I do like to talk about it because I think it's a good example of what we're talking about here. Her first film was called The Last Supper. And the Last Supper was about a bunch of left-wing people who used to have a dinner party, and they used to invite to the to their left-wing dinner party. They lived in a small town. The most right-wing person they could find, and the right-wing person would come to the dinner party, and then they'd kill the person, and then they'd feed that person to the tomatoes, and then they, the next week they'd find another right-wing person. And anyway, they ended up running out of right-wing people to kill, and so they looked at all of them. The the, the 12 of them at dinner and killed the most right wing of the 12 of them. And then they killed the next one. And anyway, they ended up, they ended up only being two people left. And they were trying to work out who was the most right wing out of the two of them. To, and they were fighting, trying to kill each other. And the whole, the whole premise of the movie is that the extremes, whether you agree with them or not, are fighting for your liberties. They're fighting for your beliefs. They're fighting for you to have an open playing field of freedom of thought, of expression, and so on. And it's something that I think, in particular, the left-wing of politics has kind of got themselves all fucked up about in, in the council culture and so forth, is that the extremes on both sides or on any issue are really important. And we're completely now becoming intolerant of extremism. So calling someone an extremist is now is now really that's a really bad thing to be an extremist. Whereas coming back to creativity and all of that kind of stuff is, uh, I worry where I worry where lopping off the edges is taking us. Is it making us more and more homogenized and more and more dehumanized? 
And then I couple that thought with all the science fiction writers portraying the future. And in the future, we're all wearing spandex. We've all got the same haircut. We've all got our pants pulled up high. We're all walking in unison. You know, look, any any kind of depiction of the future kind of shows humans as, as kind of semi-autonomous. And I reckon that's maybe it's starting to happen. Maybe we're, we're in this process now of modifying each other's behaviour so much and regulating each other's behaviour so much, we're starting to lose our humanity a little bit. It's interesting because as you talk about that, I'm sort of seeing it play out in a in a therapy sort of context where it's almost like these uh, sort of you know, left-wing uh, ideas or ideologies are the fear that clients experience in a room. And when when they're paralysed by that fear, they can't act. They can't go out and pursue their own you know, uh, personal pursuits and values because they're so afraid of, you know, what might happen. And in, in, in some sense, there's almost like a culture going on at the moment where a lot of us are feeling afraid of engaging in particular topics uh, because they're now topics that are frightening. Um, you know, we don't know if there's going to be significant backlash or, or, or you know, some sort of uh, negativity that comes from it. It's, it's kind of like we're becoming paralysed as, as, as individuals, maybe as even as a society. And in therapy, we would encourage a client to try and be brave or courageous in the service of something much more important. But, you know, here we are feeling more and more of that pressure ourselves too and, and I, I'd probably imagine also bending the way that we behave, maybe even in this conversation already. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, just bring it right back to the, to the therapeutic relationship again. I, you know, I look at those beautiful experiments that Albert Ellis used to try to get his clients to do, like dragging a banana on a string as a pet or, um, uh, you know, having to call out the next next stop on the tube so everybody or on the subway so everybody there, you know, coming up next stop, blah, 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 and yes, yelling it out loud for everyone to hear. And just those publicly, those public, I, I don't know what he called them, but almost self-shaming and realising that nothing bad will happen if you act like an idiot in public. It's kind of a simple way of saying, um, you know, the courage to be yourself or the courage to stand against the tide or the courage to have a big thought is 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 needed, especially in the onslaught of public opinion in, in you know, everyone in the Twitterverse and all that kind of stuff. Um, and also, you know, Google remembering everything forever now. It gets harder and harder to, I think, be an individual and stand out. And, and I liked what you said before about if that's just the outward machinations of that, then the inward consequence of that for everyone is greater anxiety, greater fear. Um, yeah, it makes it harder and harder to, to, be, to be yourself and, be, and accept that maybe. It also means that we've therefore got a narrowing of, of behaviours that we choose. And, you know, as a psychologist, you know, the reason why clients are coming in is because they've got, you know, a very narrow set of behaviours. They've got a very narrow set of thoughts and, and, and cognitions and feelings that they're, they're targeting. 
Uh, and our job, you know, in many ways is, is to uh, broaden those so that, you know, there are more options on the yeah. table, that there isn't just a response of fear and assumptions, but rather, you know, maybe some different perspectives of, of what may happen. You know, I like what you say in terms of going out and testing it so that you can get a real-life um feedback loop so if you go out and and do something a bit outrageous you actually see that no one cares that you know your ego has been lying to you the whole time you are not the center of the universe and no one actually um, thinks you're special nor do they care about you and so it can be quite liberating to do some of those some of those things as well so i like that but i think you know our fear uh, is, is becoming higher and our repertoire of behaviors and thoughts and actions and everything else is, is just narrowing and, and that's a concern. I, yeah, I, to, I totally agree. And, I, and um, yeah, and it just comes back, come, come back to the camera ideas, doesn't it? And um, just trying to keep the playing field of possibility broad and open. I, um, I read years ago, and I don't know if it's true, that if you took an Elizabethan person, if you met an Elizabethan person on the street today, that person would be locked up as being insane or having being DSM'd in some way because they would be so demonstrative and so hello and so big with their emotions. Like, hello, good sir, how are you today? And all that kind of stuff. Um, that that they their emotional repertoire was so broad, they'll probably be considered borderline or something and 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 ill in some kind of way. Um and that's just the data point of the chopping off of emotion and emotional repertoire now is, is much tighter than it used to be. I, I have my, my son is joined us for a little bit. So there just good. might be some colour and movement and atmosphere. Um, <laughs> but hopefully. Can you go downstairs now, little buddy? Please, I'm on this call. No, I think, I think I'll come I'm a father of two, so I, uh, you know, uh, that puts everything into perspective as well, doesn't it? Talking about marketing, you know, how much we change as, as being and our value systems. You know, I, I used to look at cars, you know, as a young man and say, why would anyone get a station wagon? That's a stupid, you know, uh, type of vehicle. <laughs> you know, everyone wants a sports car, don't they all know? Um, and it's just so hilarious that the, the naiveness that the human condition brings, thinking that, you know, everyone yeah. else's thoughts. What I I find that fascinating, that um, it takes big life events to seriously change and having kids can do that. The other thing I find really liberating, having two, my second one's quite young, is they're so different. I just feel like, oh, my God, thank God, it's got nothing to do with me. They're just their own people and and I'm quite inconsequential to the whole thing in terms of how they're how they develop you know they've got their such strong personalities they're born with from day one they and um and we just need that we need they need acceptance and love obviously but um it is kind of liberating realizing that there's no way i can control those those kids it's beautiful because i think you know darwin nailed it with evolution and, and variability that uh you know your first will be different to your second and, and vice versa uh, by biological design, and if it wasn't that way, we'd be in trouble. We we, we have to have that that, that diversity, and and our children, you know, 
you know, just a pair will show you how different and, and, and um, you know, it also means that when we do look at norms in our work, whether it's, you know, in psychology or, you know, in, in marketing, depending on what niche you're trying to target, there is a great breadth, you know, uh, and, and every little segment now has, you know, 30 categories in it. It's, it, it, it blows my mind, um, you know, that... Uh, you know, milk, there are 50 milks out there and yeah. then there's a segment for, I don't know, oat milk and, and, and you know. I, there's, 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 an interesting, um, there's an interesting study in that, isn't there? The more homogenised people become, the more fragmented uh, <laughs> categories and peanut butter and milk become. Like what's, go, what's going on there? The always perceived choice. It just allows us to be more and more homogenized at a really fundamental human level. There's something. It's almost like, you know, we've become adolescents again and we're like, I've got to individualize myself. You know, I've got, I've got to be different. I'm not, I'm not going. That's with right. That's peanut. right. You know, creamy peanut butter doesn't, doesn't do it for me. I want crunchy or something, right? Like, <laughs> I'm that's a folder. Right. You're a scruncher. <laughs> Adam, do you? Do you do any more uh, uh, clinical work at all, one-on-one with with clients? Or, or, I, or I, I, I don't. I, I wish I did. And I always I'll get back to it. So when I was at Saatchi and Saatchi, I used to work for Relationships Australia and did relationship. I'm really into men's issues. I'm really into what the, the plight of men um, at the moment. And... Um, um, and so I, I love that. I love just having that hour or two. Hang on, hang on, little buddy. Uh, oh, hey, hey, buddy, you go downstairs and I'm going to come down very shortly, okay, please? Oh, yeah. Hey, no, no, go downstairs. You got my phone? You got my phone? You go play that. Tell mum to turn my phone on for you and then I'll come down shortly, okay, buddy? That's what my parenting has become. <laughs> um, it's good to know um, others are doing exactly what I'm doing as well, so I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, the sad thing, the only people who don't do that are Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. They never <laughs> let their kids play on phones. They go, oh, fuck, what's going on? Um, you know, I, 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 I don't do any uh, therapeutic work anymore. For many years I try to balance um, doing work. I worked in Relationships Australia when I was at Saatchi and Saatchi for a while, used to run men's groups. I would like to do um, stuff in the therapeutic environment again, although um, my business partner says I'm a psychologist and I know enough about people to pull them apart, but I forgot how to put them back together again. So maybe it's a good thing that I'm not doing the therapeutic stuff at all. What's your most what What's your most uh, uh, pleasurable part of your work now? Where, where Where does your passion lie as as a you know consumer psychologist? What What uh, you know uh, floats your boat? The thing I enjoy most about um, the, my work and the, what absolutely drives me the most is um, creativity. Um, and coming up with creative ideas that engage people or screw with the world in some kind of way. So I just, I, I have got a slight adolescent tendency at heart, but it does come back to this whole thing around fighting homogeneity um, and so on. I, I've always loved um, fucking with the world, basically, and doing things that are interesting 
So when I can, when we can think of ideas or ways to approach things in fresh ways that have never been done before, or get people involved in some kind of movement or some kind of thing that, that didn't exist before, um, it, that's where that's what I really get off on. And is that something that that uh, uh, is a flavour of each week? Is that is that something you're able to? Uh, engaging, connect with on, on a weekly be, uh, basis, or is it uh, you know the natural grind that that, that we all feel? I'm just fascinated to, to, to you know understand your world. Um, one of the reasons why, so I always wanted to be a consumer psychologist. Just hang on a sec. Asterix, Adi, outside, please, buddy. One of the reasons I always wanted to be a consumer psychologist. One of the reasons why I got into why I left corrective services was because of the monotony of uh, patients all the time and that kind of tight little loop that I found myself in. And it and I wanted more a more dynamic kind of working environment, one where I could chop and change and do different things. Um, and so I think working in my industry now, I can do that. And because it's part of popular culture, I can see our work in culture all the time. And then I feel that feels good and, and so on. Um, I'm lucky enough now to be in an agency that's big enough, that has enough projects on the go, that there always seems to be something uh, daily or at least weekly where I'm thinking of ideas and um that that genuinely creative part of of the job so I, I get I do get a lot of satisfaction from work um but um a bit like you I've also um written a couple of books um I host a podcast series called black t-shirts which is double xl creativity for marketers um I do public speaking you know so I do like to have. I do like to be able to mix it up. How has uh, I'm just mindful of our time. Just looking through it to, to wrap it up. How how has psychology helped you in uh, doing your work with with you know within marketing, advertising, you know, with, with, with consumers? Do you find that you draw on psychology a fair bit? Um, you know, in compa- comparison to maybe your peers, uh, has it kind of become uh, a little bit push back a little bit or is it something you draw on quite quite regularly psychology has helped my career in three ways probably the one the, the first and foremost is probably the um academic placebo um so just being caught calling yourself a psychologist has a lot of uh placebo power in it everyone that whole thing about oh, oh you're are you reading my mind and all that stuff it still exists right it's amazing so that's probably the first and most most powerful thing. The second thing is all the frameworks I've learned from psychology. So being able to, there's great power in being able to explain why and how an idea will work and how creativity works. And there's great power in being able to break stuff down to do that. And the third, the third way that psychology works is again through my through practice in in a therapeutic setting and talking to people and understanding the fundamental drives of, of human behaviour and how they operate, I do feel like I've got a really good understanding of, of, of 
people and, and how they and how they operate. That that third one is obviously you sound like a dickhead if if you um, pretend to know how people operate at all. But um, yeah, so so anyway, that they're, they're the three I think. Fantastic. So yes, it's been, you know, I love it. I love psychology. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful profession, and I'm so I'm so grateful for that. Um, uh, for that counselor, Kim Sawyer is his name from um, from Perth. I think he ended up going to prison for um, embezzlement or something. But um, anyway, but I'm so grateful for him to have suggested becoming a consumer psychologist because it's it. I, I really enjoy what I do. And thank thank you uh, also for doing what you do because I am such a proponent for psychology being in so many spheres. I just think we've got so much to, to, to offer for those reasons that you raise as well. But, you know, having, you know, at least an informed uh, way of viewing the world, making decisions, it's not always going to be empirical, but, you know, clinical work isn't constantly empirical, but it does have a good, strong guidance and, and, and a basis as to why we're doing things. And that's exactly what, what I think the marketing space does. You can't have the data for everything, but you can build in a clinical impression with your experience. So, you know, thank you for doing the work that, that, that you do because I think we need more psychologists, you know, to, to be courageous and, and, and you know, uh, uh, advocate for our for our uh, profession in, in other spaces. We've got a lot to offer and, you know, to improve the world in many different ways, whether it's educational, whether it's, you know, in consumerism, obviously, you know, your standard, you know, where we usually belong in therapy and the clinical settings. But, uh, you know, organisations can use us in other things. So, you know, thank you for, for, for uh, the work that you do and, and promoting psychology as well. It, it, it's very uh, you know, heartwarming. Uh, cheers, Nash. I really appreciate that. Um, thank you. Fantastic. And uh, we'll have to uh, uh, do a final plug for you. Where can people find out about your work, your books and the like? Um, the books, I guess the books... Amazon, stop listening to the customer. Try hearing your brand instead is one. The advertising effect, how to change behavior is the second. Um, Back T-shirts is the, is a podcast on Listener and Apple and Spotify or whatever. Um, and then my agency is Thinkabell. Uh, and then um, I'm on Twitter at Adam Ferrier. And I think LinkedIn is Adam Ferrier as well. Wonderful. Uh, and Yeah, thank you. Thanks for, thanks for letting me do that plug. No, no, I think I think it's useful. The, the, the more we can get out there, the better. But, uh, yeah, thank you again and appreciate you coming on the show. I know how busy you are and uh, time to get back to your uh, uh, beautiful family. <laughs> good on you, mate. Thank you very much. That was really good fun. Thanks, Adam. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.